Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. Uh, Luke 18, we are going to finish the chapter today. Verse 1 of the chapter had the word then. We are still on the road to Jerusalem. Nothing has stopped Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. He's had distractions. He's had conversations. He's had teachings and parables. But we've been on a multi-chapter trip that has headed towards Jerusalem. And Luke kind of sets up this image, I think, for what we're going to see in the second half of the chapter. He stops. And he takes a moment and something interrupts him. And I think it's, it's, it's just amazing. So, But there's always been a then and he and at that time or something to that effect. He has encountered Pharisees that were aggressive. He has encountered lepers, nine of ten of which were thankless for what he did for them. And now he's responding to this request of the disciples saying, increase our faith. And he talks through them like, if you want to increase your faith, the answer to that, if you remember, was pray more. Pray without ceasing. Pray all the time because the act of prayer is an act of faith. So we have this focus on Jesus. Um, that was another thing he kind of, when it comes to increasing your faith or dealing with people that offend you, focus on the fact that he's coming back, chapter 17, 20 through 37. That means keep your eyes in your heads, like watch, be aware, know the signs of your times. Believe in what matters most accurately. Read the word, know what it says. The third thing is, one of the things to focus on when you're going through this life is to focus on the fact that Jesus is the judge. He will judge us as we hit and, and to not let go of our sense of justice. Like God put a sense of justice in it. In Romans, he wrote the law of God on our hearts. So when things are done that are wrong and we know that they're wrong, it's not our job to judge, it's his job to judge. And then that fourth one that he gave is to pray and pray continually that Jesus, the judge who's coming back, will come soon. And again, we're told that Jesus will come back when everybody who's going to heaven has made a decision to go to heaven. So he's not going to, he's going to tarry until not one soul is left out that wants to be there. There's a humility and a repentance and an open door to salvation. Still, there are some people that want to go back to works, which is where we're at in verse 18. So verse 18, now a certain ruler asked him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The, 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 the now in verse 18, he's likely still playing with kids from verse 15. So he's, this interaction is happening with an atmosphere of Pharisees over here, curious people over here, a multitude of people just hearing what this guy has to say, and a bunch of kids who he just didn't. So he's actually doing the blessings on these kids while this is happening. The certain ruler, little is known about this person. Matthew mentions him too. He's not named there. Uh, Matthew does add the district descriptive term young in Matthew 19, 22. He's a rich, young ruler. In verse 18, we're going to see he has authority and he has some power. Um, in verse 23 in Matthew, he has some money. So he has things that he puts his trust in. He's done well in life. I think in all the Gospels that mentions this character, um, he's already he's done very well. And he uses the phrase good teacher. At first read, that's a nice title to give to Jesus. He's good and he's a teacher. 
Um, so it's far from a sneering derision of the last three chapters. It's far from challenging Jesus. There's a certain humility that this rich young ruler has. He comes and he calls him a good teacher. The title is specifically, however, reserved for God in the Talmud. So it is contrary to Pharisee tradition to call anyone good, ever. So the fact that he uses the term good is kind of striking, and for us, when we read this, that should stand out. Um, it's truthful, um, but it's something that would only be applied to God himself. It's also clearly setting himself before Jesus in humility and standing. Another way to look at this, he's the first of two characters we're going to talk about today. The next character calls him Lord. So to be a good teacher, to acknowledge who Jesus is, is still a different relationship than what we're going to see later in the chapter. And then he asks the question, what shall I do? And I think if I'm reading this, and you may read it differently, I think he's being sincere and humble when he says this. Good teacher, like, what do I have to do? Just tell me what to do. In fact, I've prayed that to God before. Right? God, just tell me. I just want to know what should I do to be, to be following in a way that's decent or good. And it, the Old Testament focuses on this do kind of tradition. This is how the Jews operate. Tell me the plan and I'll stick to the plan. And if I stick to the plan, I'm blameless. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm, out, I'm within the law. So if the law isn't enough, which is what Jesus has just taught, what replaces it? And that's, I think, the core of this question. If we have to be better than the law, then what, what, what is better than law? What's the plan? So Dave Gusick says it like this, like all people by nature, we have an orientation towards the earning an eternal life. He wanted to know what a good work or what a noble deed is that he should do that would earn him that life. So the problem is here is, again, it's, it's what Jesus can do. It's not what we can do. And that coming before God, you know, a lot like the Pharisee saying, I'm a good person, but the Pharisee does it with derision. This guy does it because he actually believes he's a good person. And I don't know about you, but I've talked to a lot of people that aren't following Jesus, but they'll say, well, I'm generally a good person. I'm decent. Of course, God will let me into heaven. I've done everything I need to do to get to heaven. The difference, that I think, with this guy is he's actually trying to understand it. And so verse 19, so Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Again, he's repeating the Talmud here. So he's teaching him, well, this is what the Jewish people have taught. That idea that only God is good, however, is not in the Old Testament. There are people in the Old Testament that are considered righteous, Abraham for one. And it's not Abraham that does something to become righteous, but he is deemed righteous by God. So he doesn't deny the title. Jesus actually accepts the title here, but he repeats the rabbinic rule, I think, to point out to everybody, you just used the word good with me. Doesn't that mean, according to your tradition, that I'm God? So no one is good but God. So it's a true statement. Jesus is good, and I'm sure the Pharisees would be further aggravated that he didn't reject the title. Don't call me that. So Jesus answers the question very simply. <laughs> you know the commandments, verse 20. The guy says, what do I need to do to be good? And he says, you know the commitments. It's all been written out. The Old Testament tells us what defines right and wrong. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Jesus gives the shortest version of the first five commandments, basically saying, et cetera, et cetera, follow the law. There's 600 laws in the Old Testament. If you want to memorize them all, you can do that at the men's Bible study in the middle of the week. But I think what Jesus is saying in verse 20 is this is common knowledge, you guys. Everybody knows what's right and wrong. What is it about your spirit that knows I have to do something more? It's not enough to just follow the commandments. Why is there still a God-sized hole in our heart even though we do all the right things? 
Heck, my dad's here today. You can just ask him. I've been a pretty good kid all along, but yet there's something that says, I need more. I, I need to do more than just not kill people. There has to be something there because you do recognize there's something that's not quite right. Dad, you should have nodded yeah at that one. <laughs> Everyone that cares to know can read what God expects. If you want to know what God thinks is right and wrong, just read the Old Testament. He'll tell you. And I love that we serve a God that didn't do anything in secret. There's no secret spaces with God. It's right out in the open. But something about human nature is, well, there's got to be something to that. There's got to be this special like Da Vinci code or something, something I have to unlock, some accomplishment or achievement I should do. Should be a certain number of people that I lead to salvation. And then when I hit that number, I'm good for heaven and I can go play computer games, right? There has to be some measure of this. And it's very unsettling for most humans to not have a measure, to not have something that we can carnally put our head around. And in verse 21, he kind of gives that response. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. Hey, Jesus, I've, I've kept the law. I'm good. It's a common claim amongst the Jews at this time that to say I'm pretty good is not to be capital G good, right? Only God gets the title good, but there were tons of Jews walking around saying that they were blameless, Right? Deuteronomy 18, 13. But you must be blameless before the Lord your God. We're told you have to be without blame. There can't be any blemish on you. So the Jewish people tried. There's a whole era of human history where God's people did everything they could do to be good. They were, they were not sinless in, in, in the Hebrew tamim. To be complete, to be whole, to be sound is that word blameless. I've kept these things from my youth. I've balanced the debt. There's nothing to be redeemed about me because I don't have a debt to anyone or to God. No one has anything. And this guy has no, nobody can accuse him of anything. No, he's done no wrong to anyone. He has decent standing with the community. And these, I think, are some of the hardest people to introduce to Jesus because they're decent. They're in the Lions Club. They, they serve at the fish fry on Friday nights. They're pillars of their community, and they can honestly, and I think sincerely say, I've kept the law. So why is he still asking, what do I have to do to be saved? Because he still knows he's not saved. You can do everything right and still have something left. And that's the problem with what we talked about last week, self-rightness or self-righteousness. When you define that you're right and you're good, there's something wrong with that definition at its core. So Paul made this claim too. I just want to point out this claim of blamelessness, how big of a deal this was. So in Philippians 3.6, Paul says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, at that time the Christians were the bad guys, touching the righteousness which is the law, blameless. And Paul was saying, look, of anybody, I was the most blameless person to walk the earth. Frankly, Paul fits the description of the rich young ruler, which makes me wonder, is Paul the rich young ruler who is unnamed by everybody else? Because he fits this description, and when he tells his testimony, he describes this very situation, and we're told that Jesus loves this guy and has reached out for this guy. I wonder if Luke is artfully introducing him at this point, because he fits every criteria of this character. But again, that's me. The Bible doesn't say this is Paul. But Paul wrote about his blamelessness in the same way that this guy's claiming his blamelessness. Philippians, and then here's what Paul says about his blamelessness. I think us as Christians, we need to know where this leads. Because I got a lot of very good people in the room. You're pillars of your community. 
But this is what Paul says about that. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in his flesh, I'm better than you. (laughs) I'm more than you. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, which is the law, blameless, but... What things were gained to me, these things I've counted loss for Christ. They actually work against me to serve in the kingdom. Yet indeed, I also count all these things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish. And that word there is is genteel in the English. It's much cruder in the original. I count them all as garbage that I can gain Christ. There's no title, there's no degree, there's no certificate, there's no amount of reading, there's no set number of times you come to Bible study that will get you into heaven. None of it. All of those things we do because we love Jesus, not to earn the love of Jesus. So when Jesus heard these things, verse 22 in our chapter, he said to him, you still lack one thing. And I'm sure this rich guy's just sitting on the edge of his seat right now. What's the one thing? What am I missing? Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Ah. Okay, so Mark adds that Jesus loved this guy, Mark 10, 21, and that Jesus said this with compassion. Like, this guy's so close. He wants Jesus. He's living righteously. You think about this guy, man, you'd make a good Jesus follower. And then you still lack one thing. You got everything right, but you don't have assurance of salvation. You don't have the hope of salvation. You're not saved. So Jesus, I think, in his knowledge, points out the one thing that's holding this guy back. He's putting his trust in all the wrong stuff. That's where it is. But when he heard this, verse 23, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. We're told the reason. He had lots of money. And it was impossible for him to consider just walking away from it all. And if you put your money before your spiritual life, there's a major thing here. For the self-right people, there's hope. There's there's a solution. (laughs) You run from your old life. You follow Jesus. And those two things, when you put them together, are your hope. That's the thing you have to do. Be willing to walk away from it all. Or in this case, for Jesus, he recognizes this guy's heart. You have to give it up. You can't maintain all your wealth and follow me at the same time. You can't do it. And he just said a few story passages ago, you can't serve both God and mammon. But here's an example of that. This guy can't do it. And that makes him sorrowful. It doesn't make him angry. He's just sad because he wants to follow Jesus. But something about he just can't let go of it. And he knows himself well enough to know that at this point in time. Jesus doesn't come to condemn him. I want to point that out. He actually offers this guy an invitation. Come, follow me. That's the same invitation the disciples got. This guy could have been one of the disciples because he got the same invitation from Jesus and he just he can't bring himself to doing it. I think it's why Peter's so it's like, okay, how are we doing? Because we actually did follow you if you look down a few verses. But that idea of come and follow me has nothing to do with the self or being right or following the law. It's all about following Jesus. And the invitation, the same one given to Matthew, who actually did it, the same one given to a fisherman, Peter, who actually did it, is the same one this guy gets. So people that are confused are often soaking in ideas outside the word of God, the body, and the spirit. This guy's the same way. He's putting his trust in things the world has told him to put his trust in. And he's lived his whole life that way. 
So they get lost in human distractions, human reasoning, and Jesus recollects them unto what matters in life. It's all about me. So when we get confused about who God is or what God wants, we look at the example that God gave. This is important, you guys. When people get worked up or they don't understand or they're frustrated with God or they don't understand God, part of it is we, we listen to what other people say about God instead of looking at the image of God he actually brought to the earth. He incarnated himself. So when you look at Jesus, you get a better understanding of who God is. It makes it easier to walk away from the riches, to say, I want to follow this guy. Honestly, if you've met any leader in your life or someone you admire or look up to, there is something, I think, about the character of Christ in that person that thinks, I can follow that guy. And we can follow people that we trust and we think know the way. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he proved he knew the way. The only question is, can you trust him? Can you trust him more than the other things you put your trust in? So in this case, this guy's very sorrowful. We're shown an example of somebody Jesus invites to the kingdom, and he doesn't get the win on this one. God does call some people to give up the very thing that they trust in, and that can be, that can be money with this guy. It can also be your own intellect that you put your trust in. It can also be the other people that you rely on. Maybe you trust in, in your parents or you trust in your spouse. Um, it, it, you, there are things where Jesus and God will some, sometimes say, if you want to follow me, you have to let go of that trust you've put in that other thing. doesn't mean to the same thing for every people, but in verse 9, they trusted in themselves. And, and we're seeing this as we go through this chapter. In verse 18, they trust in power. And in verse 23, where we're at, this guy trusts in money. So there's tons of things you can put your trust in. But he can't do it, again, at, the, at this time. Maybe this is Paul. I don't know. But he can't trust in Jesus. He can't let go of those vices. In this case, he's very sorrowful. He's very rich. This is not a happy place to be. And we should feel sorry for people like this. Man, you can't let go of that sin in your life to follow Jesus. That's sad. And we should be sad about it, too. For people that do follow Jesus, we celebrate with them. It gets pointed out again in verse 24. When Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful. Again, we're supposed to understand the emotion here. He said, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? Riches can make this tougher. They can be an obstacle. And we can get very satisfied, fat and happy, content with how we live our life. If we start to live for that life and not store up for heaven, we're not serving the king. So Americans, often when it, often they dismiss the story because we think of ourselves as not rich. But honestly, uh, you know, in, in comparison to the rest of the world, uh, the average American, even that considers themselves poor by historical and geopolitical standards, we're extremely wealthy. We live in castles. You know, yeah, even people living in one-room suites, if you don't have bugs on your floor, you're living in a castle, you know, with good insulation. Um, when Jesus saw, Jesus, Jesus actually sees this situation. I love when it points that out. Jesus actually recognizes the impact, the struggle. I don't think it's beyond God that this is a really tough thing to do. It is really tough to not put your trust in what you can do with your own hands. I can make my way through this life. I can earn what I need to. But it, nor, nor does he change the truth of the statement. He actually repeats the statement. How hard is it for people with riches? Man, it's tough. Matthew and Mark both show the guy walking away. Luke doesn't. 
Luke points out the disposition response and he hears the call and he can't give it over to God and what he's called for. And then we go straight into this. So Luke edits the story versus Matthew and Mark's gospel. Because I think Luke wants us to zero in on this hardness that's there. I want to point out this too on the flip side. God doesn't tell all of his followers to give up everything they own. Right? So, so like some people like turn this into a whole like, um, Benedictine like tradition in the Middle Ages, right? He doesn't tell everybody to give up everything they own. He tells some people to do that. Some people who need to do it to follow Jesus because they're putting their trust in it. Um, he doesn't tell everybody to give up their positions or their jobs because sometimes he wants to use where you're at in life in order to have you do ministry. But he does tell some people to leave their job and come follow him. So there's, again, it's hard but he doesn't say it's impossible. There are rich people that follow Jesus Christ. And again, I'm not trying to make an excuse for this because that can justify for us to be like, I just ignore this thing. And versus searching our heart and saying, how much do we trust in our money? How much do we trust in that sort of thing? But he says, to enter the kingdom of God. Remember the question was, what do I have to do? And, and so he's telling him something to do. He's actually answering the question. Luke 17, 37, if you flip back a chapter, they answered him and said, where, Lord? And he said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered. So he's telling him how to get into the club. And I want to point this out. This isn't just heaven. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God and to enter the kingdom of God, he's talking about joining with a group of guys that are following him in the carnal life. So there's actually the gathering of the church that he already said, this is where the kingdom is. It's here among us. And this is how this guy can enter the group. In other words, if he's still trusting in his money, he's not going to be buddies with Matthew and Peter. He's never going to form that bond. So this is interesting because here's a guy that's with the group, but he's not in the group. Do you know what that feels like? You're hanging around with people and you're, you know you're not one of them, but you can see they're all good friends. And you're kind of on the outskirts of that. And Jesus is saying part of that is to align with the same values that that group has. So for him to be entering into this group of guys and to enter into heaven, he has to let go of some things or these guys are never going to regard and respect him. He's just a visitor. Or as Chick says, he's a grazer. Comes to church and he grazes with us, but he's not part of, he's not one of, he's not part of the herd. Right? So this guy's standing there, he's next to Jesus, and he can't spiritually join in with what Jesus says is the kingdom of God. For self-right people, this is a gulf, you guys. This puts a massive gap between you and the people of God. If you trust in your pride, you trust in your degrees, you trust in your money, it's hard to fellowship and join with other people. It's hard to connect because you think you know what you're doing. So you can be there physically, but you can't really join or enter in. And it's not just social shyness, you guys. There's shy people. That we, we've embraced shy people to be part of our group. This isn't that, right? This is koinonia. Entering into a spiritual relationship with other people and with Jesus and not putting your trust in yourself, but laying your trust in with the people of God and with the kingdom of God. Verse 25. Again, I think this is a third way Jesus says this. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So, first of all, this is comedy. Jesus is using a preposterous image. Um, however, the eye of a needle, we should know, and I think this is important because he says it's hard in the last verse, hard for this to happen, but not impossible. It's hard for a camel to go through an eye of a needle, but I'd suggest it's not impossible if we know the original Greek. So the Greek on the eye of the needle, the eye of a needle is a hole that is punctured into something, but it doesn't say what that something is. 
So a, it's, a, it's a turn of phrase that they used in the first century. Um, a hole punctured into something could be a hole that a needle punctures into fabric, but a needle could also be um, anything that's in there. It's the only use that we have in the entire Bible. You, Luke uses a slightly different word for needle than Matthew and Mark do, but both of the words mean hole or gap, just like we have the word hole and we have the word gap. So it's tough to translate this word because it's the only one, Luke is the only one that uses this word. So all three use the word for the eye. So that idea of the hole punctured into something, you know, to be quite frank, you'd use the same phrase for a hole that's punctured through a hand with a spike. It would be the eye of the needle. And so if you think of the images that Jesus brings to mind there, he's using a popular phrase, but this would be the more common use of the phrase. When traveling into a walled city in the first century, many of those walled city gates were made in an L shape, so you couldn't just march a Roman chariot straight through it. So they'd build the gate to go like this and then turn right. And animals don't like that because they can't see what's in front of them, so it's very hard to get an animal to go into these. And we talked about this, I think, when we went through Matthew, right? There's a way to get them through. First of all, the animal has to trust its master. If the animal trusts its master, it'll do almost anything. I learned this really clearly. Katie took timber through dog training, and part of dog training is for a dog to like submit to their master and go through a tunnel. So she, 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 she has the command, timber tunnel, and he'll go under anything even though he can't see what's over his head. And it's, it was fascinating because we were out at Ross Place, and there's an electric fence there. And Timber was trying to sniff at the cows on the other side because he's a dog. And he got zapped by that electric fence. And when he popped out, he popped on the other side of the fence from us, right? So then he tries, like, he's like, ouch, that hurt. And he wants to run back to his owner and pop, he hits it again. And now he's just, he's just whimpering. He's in this tough shape. Katie, cool-headed Katie that she is, we should just call her Cool Hand Katie. (laughs) She goes, Timber, tunnel. And he flops to the ground and slides under the thing, even though he can't see the wire. And he gets through without being popped again. Of course, I'm scared to death because these cattle do not like a barking, yelping dog. So the cattle are getting stirred up, and I'm thinking, oh, this could end really bad. But very smooth way to get through. That's how you get through the eye of a needle. Obedience, submission, and trusting in the things you can't see. And if there is trust in the master, you can walk a camel right through there. Here's another thing you got to do to get a camel through the eye of the needle. You got to unburden it. If you got all the pack goods and the boxes hanging off the camel, it can't fit through. And this guy is told to get, dump off all of his wealth and permissions because it's just baggage. He's got too much stuff on. He's got to take it off and get rid of it to get through that gate. How hard is it for, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle In other words, it's possible. You can get a camel through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So he's probably talking about these needle gates. It could be as they're moving past Jericho here that they're actually looking at one of those gates. It could be that while he's trying to teach, he's got a braying camel off to the side with a master that doesn't have the trust of the animal and it's actually interrupting the teaching, (laughs) you know? And so he's pointing this out going, he could just be pointing across the marketplace, a lot of times at the gate, and we see this all the way back to the time of David, the gate is where people met. It's where the marketplace was. It's where the town center was. So if they're sitting there and they're teaching and they're talking and they got kids coming out to be blessed and all this has happened, they're likely sitting by a gate. They're, they're, they're very likely to be sitting next to a place. And if it's during the day, people are trying to get their animals through these gates. 
So Jesus could be doing all those things. Um, but again, one other thing is he's actually playing off the more popular exaggeration. Rabbis in this time would use the phrase, it's like getting an elephant through the eye of a needle. And when they used that phrase, it was meant to express the idea of impossibility. You can't get an elephant through the eye of a needle because no matter how much baggage you take off, the elephant can't fit. So it could be that what's striking about this phrase is not the eye of the needle, it's that he uses a camel instead of the popular elephant. And he's saying it's harder to get a camel through the eye of a needle. Not easy, hard to do, but not impossible either. It's very doable. So verse 27 reinforces this point that it's hard but not impossible. So those of you that have means and resources, there's a way to do this. Given what it means to live, this is a really challenging idea. Here's part of why I think this is so hard. We actually have to have money in this life. We have to have currency. This is the neat thing about Jesus' teaching when he looks at the coin and says, whose face is on it? And says, Caesar's. Well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Like there's this loose hand that Jesus has with money, but Jesus actually has people pay for things. He actually pays his taxes. So it's hard because every single one of us have to have money coming in and out of our possession. It's how to handle that money that becomes important. So how can we not live for money at some level because we actually need it, right? We have to get it to, to do this. So if sinners are lost and Pharisees are lost and good rich young rulers are lost and anybody who has money could be lost, then the question in verse 26 is pretty, well, who in the world can get saved? Jesus, you're teaching that basically everybody has a problem with getting into heaven. So in verse 26, and those who heard it said, like the whole crowd is saying, well, who in the world can be saved at that point? How does this even happen? How does it work? An acknowledgement here, being rich makes it tougher to let go of this world. I think much tougher. There's five biblical pitfalls to riches, and it's for our wisdom, it's good to go back through these. What are the things that get in our way when it comes to riches? Here's number one. We get into a habit of working for money, time, training, and we desire more of it, right? Job 21, 13, they spend their days in wealth and in a moment they go down to their grave. The problem is when it comes to making money, we can be making money seven days a week all the time. You want to work, you can go make as much money as you want. How hard do you want to work? So we could spend all of our days working for money and never give anything up. And again, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here because you all gave up your Sundays to come learn the word. And that's what God asks of you. Give up one day a week to do his work and six days a week you can do your work. In other words, part of that command is you're supposed to go work and make money and earn your living. And if you're working six days a week, God asks you to trust him, you're going to be fine. You don't need to work the seventh day. He'll make sure that you get enough in six days. You don't need the seventh day. And so here's number two, the habit of choosing the carnal domain over the heavenly domain, the inability to define a limit. This is a roadblock to wealth. Not only, number one, can I work every day for wealth if I want to, but number two, I can continue to make the choice of loving that wealth versus loving the things of heaven. Ecclesiastes 5.10, don't trust me. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. It's all vanity. The problem is it's never enough. And you can think, man, I love having money. I love being rich. We've lived month to month our whole married life until like the last year, right? Where it's like, oh, okay, we can start paying some things off. 
And I got to tell you, it is a temptation to be like, man, it is nice to not be tight all the time. It feels good. On the other hand, spiritually, God made sure he, he knew my heart. He gave me a good 40 years of life of being strapped all the time, right? Because he knew that that would be a tough thing for me. I like having things. I like my heated seats, right? I like to go to a show when I feel like it. I like to see a concert now and then. I like to go out to eat when I feel like going out to eat. And that's pitfall number two. You can always fall in love with the money. And that's a danger. Most people in America consider rich, quote unquote rich, as somebody who makes 50% more than they do. And then you go talk to that person and they consider rich somebody who makes 50% more than they do. So take your annual income, chop it into half, add that to your annual income and you'll be like, that's what I define as rich. And most Americans feel like rich is something just past what they have. Because there's things they want that they can't have. There's action figures they want, but they can't afford to buy them. Right? There's always something. Here's number three. The habit of maintaining a lifestyle that you currently have. This is a pitfall. The expansion of wealth is one thing, but the fear of losing it becomes another pitfall. And think about this. Like, If you lost everything you owned, would you still be cool with Jesus? Would you still be good? Job went through this. So Ecclesiastes 6.2, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so he lacks nothing for himself, he has all that he desires. This is a pitfall. Getting everything you want is not a win. Getting everything you want makes you have no desire to move forward. So one, you can work for it all the time. That's a, a, an act of, of coming from a place of loss, desire. You can choose it over the heavenly and you can fall in love with it. And three, you can have fear of losing it. Number four, you this is Solomon. You also get responsibilities with wealth. The bigger the house, the more caretaking it takes. Right? The, the bigger the driveway, the more you got to shovel. The, the problem of wealth is it, it can make it so you don't have time for relationships. You just run out of time for everything. Yeah, I can't be there because I got to go up to the cabin and get it winterized. And then you get back and it's like, well, now I got to winterize my boat. And then you got to do this. And everything you own has caretaking involved. Solomon talked about this. When goods increase, they increase those who eat them. So what profit have owners except to see them with their own eyes? The only profit of having more and more and more stuff is that you have more and more and more stuff. But it doesn't, it isn't a win. And Solomon had plenty of stuff. Five, here's the last one, just understanding what money does psychologically, arrogance of wealth. There's a danger when you make it and you have things that you, this thought comes into your head, I did that. I'm the one who made it. I'm successful. Look at all, look at how I strategized and planned and got it right. And you know, for a lot of people like this rich ruler, he probably, if you're a rich and young at the same time, that's distinctive. This, probably got, this guy got all the accolades. He got the community service award at a young age. You know, he was respected by everybody around him. And there's a temptation when everybody looks at you and, and their eyes sparkle. There's a temptation to think you're sparkly and that somehow you're there. Deuteronomy 8, 17, you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. And in Deuteronomy, that's a problem. It's a major pitfall. So biblically speaking, those are the five things that we know from the word are the pitfalls of wealth. And, 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 and I think well, arrogance is the worst of them to think that somehow you made that happen. Everywhere in the Bible, it says God gives people wealth. 
So it's when we read this in Jesus, it's not just that this guy, that nobody should have anything and everybody should give away everything they own because that's inconsistent with the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God is if, if, you're, if, you're, if you have what you need to get through your day, that's a blessing from God. He's allowed you to have that job. He helped you to get there. Are you a good steward with what you have? He promises that, that you can be blessed with more. And so when you look at these things and you know the character of this guy, this guy was sorrowful because he just couldn't let it go. He didn't want to lose what he had. And maybe in a little bit he thought, well, I earned all this. Why would I give it up? And people can get angry with God when they think about this stuff. Verse 27. But he said, and I think this is the important point of this from Luke's perspective. But he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. We're not dealing with an elephant. We're dealing with a camel. We're not dealing with impossible. We're dealing with it's really hard for this to happen. But it's possible to happen. And that gets reinforced here as we do this. We have biblical examples of people that maintain humility with wealth. Abraham, Hezekiah, Daniel, just to name a few. New Testament, Joseph of Arimathea, Matthew, Lydia, just to name a few in the New Testament. There are plenty of people that humbly have resources and put them to use for the kingdom of God to whatever degree they can. Man, I just went to a Lifetime Achievement Award this week for a guy up in Alexandria. And everybody that got on that stage was like, it wasn't about the money with this guy. It was about the faithfulness. It was his steadfast belief in Jesus Christ and anything he could do to get people closer to Jesus, that's what he used his time and resources on. And this guy had former prisoners living in his house. He set up schools for kids to learn at. It was always about promoting the gospel of Christ. And lo, the Lord blessed this guy with crazy wealth in his life. But you'd never know it. He got on the stage and he said, I think this whole award's a mistake. My name got slipped in there. This is a joke. Uh, The humility of this guy is incredible. And he's a wonderful guy. But you look around the room and there was hundreds of people there to honor this guy as just somebody in the community who used everything he had to serve people. Biblically, God provides and he gives wealth for a purpose, primarily to praise the Lord. Deuteronomy 8.18, just so you hear this, put it through your heart. You shall remember the Lord your God. It is he who gives you power to get wealth. You have wealth because you have the ability to work and he gave that to you. If you're breathing, he put breath in your lungs. Wealth has its pitfalls, but it can also be a path to gratefulness, thankfulness, remembering is one of the Old Testament. We're supposed to remember the Lord and what he's done. Blessing and the ability to build houses for God's work. Not everybody's enamored with wealth, uh, and some can walk away from it if you call. Psalm 62.10, if riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Like if God starts to bless your pocketbook, just don't fall into it. Or pray for poverty so that you don't, you, your heart always belongs to God. Actually, it's impossible for anyone to get into the kingdom of God and take anything from this life with them. So know that. Know that everything you accumulate in this life is going to disappear and you better have treasures built up in the next life. Galatians 2.19, for when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I can live for God. That's what is the proper perspective, even when it comes to wealth. None of that stuff matters. I'm willing to walk away from it in a second if God calls me to do that. God makes heaven possible for all people. Like Peter, too. And I think Peter is feeling pretty good about himself in verse 28. He's like, I think I get this one because we left everything to follow you. He didn't leave everything. So let's be careful about that. Remember when Jesus died on the cross and then there's the three days before he rose? We find Peter in a fishing boat. 
So did he borrow that boat or did he still have it? And he never, he just left it physically, but he didn't sell it financially. He went back to fishing, his old job. But Peter says here, and then Peter said, see, we have left all and followed you. Unlike the rich long muter, unlike the rich young ruler, Peter did answer the call. He did follow Jesus. He's probably standing close to Matthew right now saying, look, we gave up everything. Matthew took his money and threw a big party for everybody. So Peter's like, is that the key? It's just about giving things up? And so Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children. And again, he's looping wealth in with all everything, the whole world. There's no, if you leave anything for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many more, more in this present time and in the age to come, eternal life. Again, this is the verse 30s why I pointed out that it's not just heaven, it's also this present time that the kingdom of God is the church, it is the people of God. The blessings that come in this life and in the next come when we put Jesus first. Those that put the kingdom first are noticed by God, picked by God, because we picked him first. He gave his life, he redeemed us, he gave up everything and put out the invitation. We choose him by doing the exact same thing. We give up everything and follow him. And sometimes that means getting under the electric wire without knowing where it is. Just trusting our master. Just do what he says to do and avoid the electric shocks that are in all over the place in this life. And I think this is an important precept. I like this. I find it ensuring. God recognizes when we give things up for him. And when we say, I can't come to that because that's, I've made a commitment to Sabbath. That's important to me. So I can't do your thing on Sabbath. When we say that to people, even people close to us in our life, God actually sees that sacrifice. He recognizes it. And he says, when you do that stuff and you put the kingdom first, first of all, I think it's a witness to those people. Like these people take this seriously. This isn't a joke, right? If something's easily skipped, it's easily dismissed. And so God recognizes it. And he actually, in verse 30, promises that that is that is something that helps us build up our reputation with him, right? And, and so I, the age to come, eternal life, Jesus keeps teaching that there's a life after death. There's something beyond this. It's a lot easier to give up wealth and other things that we cling to when we recognize this is just passing. All of this is passing. And then I like this idea too. When you read 29 and 30, I get the idea, God doesn't like to have us have him owing us things. If we give something up for God, he's not going to live as a debtor. God, we're not going to be able to go to God saying, you owe me. Look at what I, you know, it, it, God doesn't operate that way. When people give things up for him, there is a spiritual blessing that comes back in return. Peace, joy, hope. And Jesus explains then what leaving all looks like. So he took the 12 aside and he says to them, verse 31, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. And all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. And they will scourge him and kill them. This is not a sales pitch for Christianity right now. And then the third day he will rise again. Oh, it is a sales pitch. You see what he's doing there? And they understood none of these things. I hope we can. And saying the saying was hidden from them. They're blind. And they don't know the things which were spoken. Like he's saying this stuff and they're just not getting this concept. In the Holy Spirit, we can get this concept. We can learn it and walk out of here understanding this. He's going to, when it says all things that are written, 
He's using lines from the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. Every one of those negative things in verse 32 and in 33, every one of those has a positive blessing to it. Jesus gives things up for the Lord, and we're told by the prophets that there's a blessing that comes with every one of those gifts. Somebody spits on you, God sees that happen. He recognizes it, and there's a, there's a blessing that comes with it too. I think Jesus is telling them the context of his sacrifice. He's going to give things up. And, and, he, and they're just, you know, he just told the rich man, give up this wealth and follow me, but look at where he's following him too. Is that a, like in the carnal, in the earthly sense, this is not a good trade. But he gives a list. I think the list is progressive. It says we're going up, and then notice in, in verse 32, he doesn't continue to use the plural. So, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the man will be accomplished. And then in verse 32, it says, for he will be delivered by the Gentiles. It goes to a singular. What does that mean? It means that everybody Jesus is hanging with right now isn't hanging with them when they get there. Abandonment. That's what I read. He's going to be abandoned by his friends. Almost everybody that chooses to live for Jesus that I've ever met, there's somebody in their past life that doesn't want to hang out with them anymore. One of the first things that happens for new believers, they get excited, they start talking about Jesus, and there's a friend or two that's like, I don't really want to hang with you anymore. And they might be Minnesota nice about it, but at the end of the day, they don't want to hear about Jesus. So abandonment. And then the next thing on the list, he will be delivered. Well, to be delivered means somebody that you know has to deliver you. There has to be a delivery person. He's going to get betrayed. Not only will he be abandoned by some, but there's going to be at least one person that turns him over and betrays him. He'll be delivered, set up, thrown under the bus camel, right? That's just going to happen. He will be mocked. It gets even worse. It just keeps getting worse. To be disregarded or be scoffed at, to be played with or trifled with, to be made fun of right? Playful mocking. And then he's going to be insulted. Not so playful mocking, like targeted and mean. To be, in the Greek, treated outrageously. To injure someone with speech. To speak evil of, to gossip about, or to abuse or lie about someone. It's a broad word in the Greek. And then to be spit upon. Now it's not just words. Not, it's not just, you know, now we're talking sticks and stones, right? To be spit upon, a vivid image of a hateful, dehumanizing action. You're not even human to me anymore. All right? This is what it means to follow Jesus. I don't think any of this has gone away. You look around the world, there's Christians getting killed today. So it, it, there are parts of the world where this is there. I think America's moving from insults to spit. And we're, we're, as a culture, we're moving there very quickly. And then the last two, to scourge him and to kill him. We have had hundreds, if not thousands of Christians be killed for the following Jesus around the world. It is not uncommon. In the meantime, everyone who follows Jesus into martyrdom, the church seems to grow after that event. In India right now, in northern India, Christians are getting killed by the hunters. Whole villages where Christians are getting wiped out. You know what's happening in the cities of India right now? Massive Bible-preaching churches are growing. One church in 2004 started with 24 people. It now has 300,000 people and services going from morning till night every Sunday. 
You know what they do at this place? When they started with 24 people, they actually served lunch. Now they serve breakfast, lunch, and dinner to over 50,000 people a service, right? So they had, it's in the CBN news right now. And if you watch the video, they show the kitchens. They had these pots where they made soup that were as big as that sofa across, like six or seven of them. That's how you feed 50,000 people. So you look at what's going on with, you know, we can focus on the scourging and killing, but I don't think Jesus focused on that. He focused on the end of verse 33. Like there's this progressively bad stuff if you're following Jesus, but then he's going to rise again. On the third day, he'll rise again. And sadly, they don't understand any of this. They're just not registering how this connects. And I got to admit, in the flesh, this is hard to process, isn't it? How does getting spit at help do anything? How does that accomplish? I would rather just like buy that guy lunch and not get spit at. Oh, but that's putting my trust in my money. Maybe if I want to affect that person's heart, I need to put my trust in something else. So they didn't understand him. The saying was hidden from them. In a sense, they heard it, but it didn't make sense to them. Until Jesus does what he's going to do, everything's meaningless. And, and honestly, this applies to our life. Until the Holy Spirit really moves in your heart, a lot of the faith, is it, it's hard to clarify. Until you've experienced it, it's hard to tell people about it. So all of these imply that Jesus has done something wrong. What's a kicker about this is Jesus is totally worthy. And I think this is where they didn't understand it. They're like, why would you get spit at Jesus? You've done nothing but heal people for three years. You've done nothing but graceful, nice things to everyone you talk to. And his followers know this specifically. He hasn't said anything except for the arrogant, prideful people that, that would be anything but healing and pointing them to God. So how would it even be possible that the Son of Man would go through these things? The thing is, he goes through these things because he's, he's holy and righteous and true, because he hasn't sinned. So... Yeah. There's a list of above. If That list above, I think, um, you know, sacrificing friends, injustice, sacrificing or giving up popularity, this adds to the wealth a considerable number of things that you lose. You can lose your pride, your dignity. You can lose your reputation. You can use comfort. And the last thing is you can even lose your life. So do you cling to those things more than Jesus? These are all things we leave in verse 29. We leave, sometimes we have to leave a friend. We have to give up on justice. We have to not worry about being popular. We have to not worry about our pride, our reputation, what people think of us. These are all things we have to give up. And he's just talking to the guy, the rich young ruler, and then turning to his disciples going, man, it's, with this guy it's wealth. With you it might be pride. Peter's got to give up the arrogance that he's strong, that he'll be there. And he's going to go through some trials to get that learned. And then he's going to be a champion when he just is broken in humility and he gives up on his own strength. God never asks us to do anything that Jesus didn't do first. I like this in leadership. I don't like to follow people that won't back it up and do it themselves. Jesus never asks us to do anything he isn't willing to do himself. And if God's calling you to make a big life decision, just ask, you know, did Jesus make these? Did he give up these things? Did he do that stuff? Jesus will leave everything, and Peter is forsaking him, is on the very first layer of what Jesus has to leave behind, because his disciples leaving him is the first thing on the list. That's the easy part. And then the third day, he'll rise, raise again. He also provides hope. 
This is worth it because the resurrection is the center of human history. So all of this has to happen. The glory and the majesty of everything he's going to do is worth it. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When you look at it from a heavenly perspective, the trade is, is not even close to fair. But it's the opposite of the carnal perspective. Like, he did all this because he knew what he was doing. I think the same is true with the rich young Euler. If this guy would have given up on his wealth, I don't think he would have starved to death. Like, he would have had food in his belly, but I think he would have had everything to gain. The, 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 what God gives you on the other side of those sacrifices is absolute blessing. Verse 34, they didn't understand any of this. And then we transition to, like, they didn't understand it. They have a spiritual blindness in verse 34. But in verse 35, we get a story of a guy who's actually physically blind. And, and so I, I think the blindness here is part, part of what we're all supposed, Luke's showing us. Verse 35, then it happened. As he was coming near Jericho, that a certain man sat by the road begging. And hearing a, a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. He can't see it. He's blind. So they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cries out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then who, who went before warned him that he should be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Again, don't miss the context of this. Jesus just got done saying, here's all the stuff you got to give up. So here's a guy who has nothing. He doesn't even have his sight, but the thing he does have, verse 36, he can hear. He can listen. So faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. This guy hears that Jesus is there and he cries out for Jesus. In fact, this guy with nothing does everything right. Opposite of the rich young ruler who has everything and does nothing right. The guy who, and the rich man ruler, his, end, his story ends with sorrow, but this blind man's story ends very differently, doesn't it? He's glorifying God at the end. And he says, have mercy on me. Think of what this means. He accepts that he has due consequences coming his way, that the law of justice works against him. You don't ask for mercy unless you know you have a debt, that there's a payment coming. He has nothing, he's blind, and he perceives that he needs mercy. He knows something about his sin and recognizes it. There's a humility to the title that he uses. He calls the name of Jesus out loud. He calls Jesus Lord out loud. I mean, honestly, he's acknowledging who Jesus is with this. Jesus, son of David, uh, is a, he sits on the throne of David. He's actually a, a king, the king of Israel, and he shouts it out. He declares who Jesus is, and he adds a title to it. It's one thing to know Jesus historically. It's another thing to know that he's king. Uh, immediately, the crowd turns on this guy. He proclaims the name of Jesus. He hears. He responds. He responds with humility, asking for forgiveness of sin, mercy. And then the crowd turns on this guy. Honestly, why would they turn on this guy? Let him shout for mercy. What's he doing wrong? He's not harming anybody, but they warn him. So instead of encouraging him and bring him along, they just tell him to shut up. Stop talking about Jesus so much. He should be quiet is literally what it says. Um, this is what he's doing is out of resonance with human rules, which is he's more worried about, you know, obviously these people are more worried about decorum than this guy getting his eyes healed, right? 
When you say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, he doesn't directly ask for sight. He just asks for for mercy. That could be, give me my sight back, but he doesn't actually make that request. He says a prayer of salvation. And when they tell him to shut up, I just love this. He cries out all the more. You want to tell me to back down? Ah, no, we're not going to do that. I want Jesus, and Jesus is more important to me than your opinion of me. I'm going to let go of the things of this world, and I'm going to cling to Jesus. In fact, cried out in verse 38 is the Greek word boeo, which means just an ordinary shouting out. But it uses a different word in verse 39 when he cries out all the more. And I like this. In the Greek, it's crazo polis malin. He went crazy. Like literally, he screams. The, the meaning of those words is there was an emotional outpouring that went out as an animal trying to get your attention. Like the world tells him to be quiet and he goes absolutely berserko crazy and just starts. And in other words, it was unacceptable to him to back off. The world wants to bend him out of shape and he's going to put more force into being right straight towards Jesus. The world's offended by him. He's offended by the world. Okay, it goes two ways. So this, (laughs) this is his one shot at a better life. It's his one shot at mercy. Why would he not yell out for it? If our only hope is in Jesus Christ, what, who, is, who would dare to quiet us talking about Jesus Christ? Who would even pretend to think it's okay for us to not talk about Jesus Christ? Shh, can you just use the word God instead of Jesus? Nope, Jesus is the name. I'll speak the name of Jesus. I'm not going to be quiet. I'm not going to say maker of all. No, 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 because that I'm going to say Jesus Christ, maker of all. King, the son of David, king of kings, lord of lords. So he cries out all the more. He ignores the false authority of the world for the real authority of Jesus. And when he uses the name of Jesus out loud, the enemy and others and the flesh, everything says, quiet down, hush up, not so much, stop being so crazy. But biblically, we're told to go crazo, right? Back us off. Why are you being so loud about Jesus? Why do you always got to talk about Jesus? You guys ever heard that? Because Jesus is my savior and I'm his servant. It's that simple. It's easy to get into the kingdom of heaven. By the way, I think Jesus is showing not only is it hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven, look at how easy it is for this guy. If you can let go of what people think of you, man, it's easy to get into the kingdom of heaven. This is why I like nutty people. They're, They're able to go crazo. They already, this is what I like about rebels. This is why I liked those seventh graders that misbehaved a little bit. They, did, they didn't follow the rules of other people. And man, if those people come believers, they're evangelists because they, they honestly don't care what people think. They're bold and they're, they're strong and courageous, as Joshua was told. It's easier for this blind man because he has nothing to lose. He, he doesn't care what people think about him because they've already dismissed this, him years ago. He's just some beggar on the side of the road. He's been dismissed his whole life. What does he care about reputation? Where the rich young ruler, all he cares about is reputation. He can't move because wealth has crippled his movements. So who can get in? Anybody that asks. That's the good news. Anybody that wants to get in can get in. So if Jesus counts more than the shushing of other people, you're in pretty good shape. Verse 40. So Jesus, we'll wrap up, and there's three more verses. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, what do you want me to do for you? I love that Jesus makes him say it. 
right? He comes, what do you want? Right? What's interesting is the rich man comes to Jesus saying, what can I do to get into heaven? But Jesus comes in and says, this guy just wants mercy. He says, what can I do for you? See who's doing the action? Here's the difference. The rich man wants to do something himself. Jesus wants to offer and give us something. If we're coming to do something for Jesus, the relationship's wrong. If we're coming to Jesus saying, help me, have mercy on me, the relationship starts at the right place, and Jesus wants it spoken out loud. And then he said, Lord, that I might receive my sight. If I could get anything in life, I would like to see. This is the opposite of self-rightness. He fully understands that he needs Jesus to be whole. And that, that's the starting point. So Jesus stood still. Remember I said he's been on his way to Jerusalem? This is the thing that stops Jesus. Someone asking for mercy stops the God that we serve. Everything stops when somebody asks for mercy. Everything stops when we pray. Luke paints a picture of an unstoppable resolve towards Jerusalem. But at this moment in verse 40, a call for help stops the unstoppable God. Man, that, this is so powerful. That's it. Knowing that you can't make yourself right and just going to Jesus saying, help me, that's all you need. That's everything. And I think in our flesh, it's not enough. We feel like we need to do more, but we don't. We simply need to humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness, have mercy, and ask for the Lord to lead our life. Give us sight. Help us to see. We can pray for any of these things. We don't have to be physically blind to know that we can't do anything. I want to just give you Galatians 5's example. There is a thing called the fruit of the Spirit. You guys have heard of this? In my flesh, I can't do love, joy, peace, long-suffering. My family knows patience is hard for me. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there's no law. Like, honestly, we could fill in the blank, Lord, please give me self-control. Lord, please give me wisdom. Give me faithfulness. Lord, help me to be kind to other people. Like, these are blind spots for everybody. Lord, that I might receive my gentleness. Lord, that I might receive my joy. You ever just wish you had more joy in your life? More love and hope? Go to God and ask for it. That's all he wants from you. Don't say, Lord, what do I need to do to get saved? Go to the Lord and say, Lord, just please have mercy on me. I have so little joy. I have so little peace. I have so little self-control. I have to get that from you, Lord. And the Lord's like, finally, I got a humble person can search the earth and go through a thousand guys and only find one that can get to this point. The whole crowd doesn't understand Jesus, but the blind man does. They have spiritual blindness. He has physical blindness, but spiritual sight. Then Jesus says to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Remember the disciples asked, how do I get more faith? This guy's got so much faith, he's getting healed. Now, don't get into faith healing stuff, right? This is a twisted use of this. If only I have enough faith, that's going back to what must I do language, right? <laughs> it isn't that. It's the humility here. And God doesn't have to give this guy his sight. He could just tell his disciples, you know what? We're taking this guy with us. Take the blind man. We'll bring him along. He doesn't have to give him his sight to give him joy and peace and feed him, but he does. Very different than what shall I do to inherit eternal life. This guy's like, Lord, I just want mercy now. Bless me right now. Uh, notice he goes, Jesus, son of David, recognizing the humanity of Jesus and the royal title that he gives him. But the second time he says, just Lord. 
recognizing not just the position and person of Jesus, but to call someone Lord is to recognize a relationship with Jesus. Do you see that difference, that language Luke's using? To call someone Lord is to give him the authority in your life, not my will, but your will be done. I serve a Lord. To say Jesus, son of David, is to just recognize you live in his kingdom. But to say he's your Lord and ask for mercy is to recognize debt and hand it over. This, this praying, this faith, it's your faith that made you well. Okay, well, what was the faith? He recognizes he owes a debt. He recognizes Jesus is the judge and can forgive that debt. He's not just a good teacher, verse 1. He's Lord and King in these things. Just the difference with the rich ruler is striking. To pray and ask Jesus is to recognize Jesus is God, to recognize that Jesus is able, and he trusts that Jesus is willing to heal him. You don't ask for things from people unless you actually think they're going to give it to you. Help me. So the prayer itself is faith unto healing. The word for faith here is pistis. It's to believe in an idea or a person. Not the ongoing faithfulness, but just that he's convinced that Jesus is God and he asks him for his sight. Jesus, who can be saved? Well, this guy can be saved. That's the answer to the question. You need nothing to get saved. A camel can't get through the eye of the needle easily, but he can get through it. This guy can get through it easily. He's no camel, he's a blind man. He just gets it. Verse 43, and we'll finish up. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. Very different ending than the rich man. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. I just love this. This is a great ending to the chapter. It's hidden from the disciples, but this guy sees everything. Following Jesus, he moves in a clear direction and he actually walks behind Jesus. Jesus says, this is the way towards the cross, and this guy follows in it. You know, he knows what it's like to be destitute and broken. And then the other piece is he doesn't just follow, he glorifies God. To elevate and celebrate and magnify the name of God, doxazo, is to honor the name, to think it and to praise it and to honor it. So instead of drawing, hey, look at me, I can see, he's like, look at God who can give sight. And the, and the, 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 the piece there is there. I think there's a passive too in that all the people when they saw it, so not only does he follow Jesus and glorify Jesus, but there's a passive there in that his new way of life is observable and noticeable by others. He's seen by others, right? So not just, Lord, give me mercy, please give me my sight, but then to follow Jesus and glorify Jesus. I think as Christians, sometimes we forget about this. We have a purpose, Ours is to elevate the name of Jesus in everybody that we know, with everybody that we know. So it's, again, it's not anything that he does, but because he's saved and healed, he does a few things too. But the following glorifying and and being seen, that doesn't save him. That's the result of being saved. Does that make sense? I think this is common Christian understanding, and it's good for us to be reminded of it. Let's close on that fruit again, the spiritual healing. What do people see in a spiritual renewed child of God? They see love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We can't heal ourselves. That's self-righteousness. We can't buy any of these things, rich, young, ruler. We can't do anything for these things. We can only ask for mercy, get healed, follow, and glorify Jesus and be seen by others. That's the plan. I think it's amazing that some Christians, that's not enough. And for us to just be content and have peace with that being the plan, that's a good plan. And good news, it's not that hard to do this. 
True glorifying of God is contagious. The Pharisees try to force it. That's abrasive. Living it is magnetic. You live the law of God and you're magnetic to other people. They can't stop following. Luke doesn't tell us just the good news. He shows us the good news and how it operates and how it works. That's the mechanic of it all. And if you're, if you're looking at your life carefully and you see that you're missing some of the fruits of the Spirit, some of those elements in your life, there's a part of your life that's blind. You might already be saved and on your way to heaven, but if there's one of those fruits of the Spirit you don't have, don't leave here today without having somebody pray for you. Like, we'll pray over you. We'll pray for those fruits to show up. We'll pray for those things to get healed. Notice the blind man was healed instantly. And I can't promise that. I don't know what God's doing in your life or how he's doing it. But I can pray for you as a brother or sister in Christ. We can bow our head and pray and say, Lord, we want the fruit of the Spirit. We want to not just be baptized by water as a symbol. We want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Bring me joy and peace and long-suffering. Make those things fruitful in my life. And I'll I'll testify to this, you guys. You pray for those sorts of things. It might take a year or two, but you'll look back a year later and go, I have more joy than I used to. God has changed me, and I don't even know how it happened. Because we don't have to understand that mechanic. We just need to understand that our heart has to be right with God. So if you're living today and you don't have peace and joy and patience, grab a brother, grab a sister, and pray sometime over lunch. Or I'll hang out here after discussion time when you guys go up and start eating. I'll just hang out down here. You hang out with me and we'll pray for you quick. It's it's an easy thing to do. So let's pray now. Dear Lord, I just thank you so much for your word. I thank you for Luke who put it down on paper. Um, Lord, I just pray for the blessing that you offer us. Um, Lord, you offer us a path to the kingdom of heaven and you've shown us the way. Um, There can be no doubt in our mind that we have a God that wants and has invited us into his presence and into a a path that's something better than the law. Um, So, Lord, we just want that. Um, There's no law against kindness and love, but we have a hard time generating those things on our own. So, Lord, bless us in those ways. Help this word to sink deep. We're your disciples. It was hidden from them. Lord, I know there's people in the room where it's hidden, but I, I pray that they can see that the love amongst the saints is part of how we know you. So I just pray, Lord, as a body, um, that we fellowship in such a way that it's much easier to see you. So Lord, I just thank you so much for the hearts that are in this room. And as we are going through things in life, um, Lord, prepare us and get us ready for Monday. And Lord, heal our spirits, renew our souls, and give us the joy and the fellowship of the saints. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.